Well, good morning, everyone. Grateful to be with you again and invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 6, the passage that Paul just read for us, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. Now, I want to dive right into our passage because what what better way to intro this particular text than the question that Paul raises, not only once, but for the second time in one chapter. It's a little different than what we heard last week in verse 1, but let me read it for you, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Now, I have prepared this sermon with the full awareness that because you are redeemed people, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are redeemed people today, yet you still struggle with sin. And I think it's the reality of hitting this section of Romans that we begin to wrestle with these things that we've learned. Now, we've learned so far that we have been justified, and I hope that you can define that by this time. I'm going to tell you again now what it means. When the Bible says that a believer in Jesus Christ has been justified, that's a legal term, and it means if you were to appear before God and you were on trial today, God has already made a declaration about you if you have come to Jesus by faith such that if you were to appear before God, he would not judge you on the sins that you have committed because he has already poured out that judgment on Christ, his beloved son. Therefore, he looks at you and he looks at me who have come to him by faith and says, you are no longer condemned. You are not guilty. Now, that's really good news. And the security of the bedrock of that promise is that no matter what happens now, that will never be taken away. Now, you can get to this point in Romans 6, and you can think, all right, Paul has already told us that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. If there's nothing that we can do to add to our salvation, if there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves more right before God, because Jesus has already taken care of that, and if it's really hard to stop sinning, then ultimately that doesn't matter, right? Because we are people under grace. To go back and to now try in some way to obey God, isn't that like going back under the Old Testament law that we are told we are not under anymore? Therefore, if we sin, I know that's not right, but ultimately, Life is just going to come at us, and it's going to be hard, and we're going to mess up. God, he forgives, he's gracious, and that's just the way it's going to have to continue to be. And Paul's resounding response to that is, by no means. By no means. We heard last week that it's that Greek term, meginita, which could mean, God forbid, In the King James, the the writers translated it that way. The word God is not there, but that is like the strongest exclamation that he could give to that attitude that I think we in this room today entertain. 
we, we get caught in our patterns of sinful struggle, and we begin to think that there's really no other way to live life other than to struggle, to fail, and then to somehow come back under the grace of God. And the proposition of Romans 6 in the first 14 verses, and now in these latter verses that we will conclude with today, is this grand theme that the grace that justifies you by Christ's merit alone has also sanctified you to live obedient lives to God. There is, in other words, hope. Change is possible. And it's grounded in the reality of the work of God. The same grace that declared you not guilty anymore, no longer condemned, is that grace that will not leave you as God continues the work in you. In, in other words, right when God declared you not guilty, he also did something to your account and he credited to you not only the forgiveness so that you could get away free, but the record of righteousness that for all of your life long, when God looks at you, he sees the accomplishments of Jesus, a lifelong obedience in the same direction towards God, never diverging from God, always obeying him. When God sees us, that is the positional sanctification or holiness in which we now live. But likewise, that same grace that gives you that standing doesn't leave you where you are. You can change. You can obey God. You can move towards righteousness today because of the power of the Spirit and the grace of God that has been activated through faith in Jesus Christ for you. And the way to get there is by becoming a slave. The entire section of Romans 6, 15 to 23, revolves around this idea of slavery. And the title of the message is Slaves for Life. It's a, a play on words. On the one hand, we are slaves for life. It means no matter what, even if you don't follow Jesus today, you are a slave for life. You can't get out of it. But for a Christian, the slavery leads to life. And we are slaves for life. We're heading in that direction We've got it, and we're never going to get off of that route. And it's progressive, and we're getting closer to Jesus. We're getting closer to being like Jesus. And that's the hope of this passage today. So after verse 15, Paul again asks a question, and it's under this point of the principle of slavery. Let's go right to that principle of slavery. Romans 6, 16 says this, Do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. One inescapable reality of life is this principle of slavery. No matter who you are or where you've come from in entering this room today, you and I are slaves. We could either be a slave to sin, or we could be a slave to God. And we need to understand what this slavery is and why Paul chooses to use this term. Because when we talk about slavery in 21st century America, it only brings up negative images. We think of the 19th century and the horrific 
African slave trade, where people were involuntarily seized from their homelands and brought to this country to become slaves and often brutalized. We also think about modern day, where people are still stolen from their homes, either for the international work and labor trade and the, the trafficking that's happening there, where kids, for example, from Africa are, are tricked by promises that they will be able to go to school, and then someone takes them, and instead of taking them to school, puts them out into a lake or into the ocean, dropping them into untangle fishing nets that are stuck on the bottom. And these poor kids are working 20-hour days. Groups like International Justice Mission are fighting for the rights of those kids and people, adults too, to be free from that. Another form is sex slavery, where someone is stolen from their homes and entered into that perverse world that's funded by wicked people, and they cannot get out unless someone goes and rescues them. Now, we know that those things are happening out there, and they're also happening even here in Knoxville. Groups like Street Hope are working to fight against that here. But we need to understand that there's a different kind of slavery that was also an option in the first century. Paul is writing into this context, and the translators of our ESV, even in the preface to their original translation, talked about why they choose different words and specific words that they do. Slavery, they know, is not going to register with us 21st century people well, and we're not gonna like being called slaves. But there was a type of slavery, and the word slavery in this instance is actually a very helpful word. There was a type of slavery that was known as voluntary slavery. In the Roman world, you could submit yourself to a wealthy landowner because you yourself have nothing, and in order to get a roof over your head and food to eat, you contract voluntarily to work under that man for a period of time. Typically in the Roman society, it was seven years. In Caesar's household, it was 14 years. At the end of that time, you were released if you chose to be released, and you could go out with a little bit of pocket money known as the wage that you earned as a slave. Now, Paul is bringing that concept to us to consider today. Each of us, every day that we get up, are giving ourselves over to someone in order to get something from that. And it's either going to be God or sin. And these are the two grand realities. The principle is this, you are enslaved one way or another because none of us wake up neutral, none of us go about our days neutral, we wake up submitting ourselves in one direction or another. That's the principle. We need to understand something though because the slavery that Paul is talking about here actually is very good for Christians. And let's talk for a moment about present realities of Christian slavery. Right? It's, it's one thing to think that we are going in these directions. Right? But for a Christian, if they don't know who they are, if they don't know what Christ has done for them, there's actually a third option that seems to often emerge. It's a Christian going into obedience to sin because they are either unaware or unbelieving of what God has said about them and what he has said is true now that governs their lives. 
And they can very miserably go in the direction of sin and get stuck there and feel the full ramification of the misery that that brings. And I have come here today with full knowledge that I am speaking to real people in real situations who have struggled with sin. And you might be right now feeling like you've taken that third rail and you're in trouble. The things that I'm about to share from Paul in the next set of verses are meant to encourage you. And even if you do not feel them to be true today, like we sang this morning, I'm not going to depend on my feelings. I'm going to go back to what's true. So let's look at what's true. First of all, you are no longer slaves to sin. That has been reinforced now for the second time in this passage. And we have been told that in Christ's death, we have died to sin. And in his resurrection, we have been brought to life. So that sin will no longer have dominion or rule or authority over us. Meaning, for a Christian, sin really doesn't order you around or boss you around. When you are tempted to sin, a Christian does not have to, by default, give in to that temptation. I think of a time when my wife and I were first married. There were still some strongholds of sin and attitudes and actions that were gripping me. And it had been with me so long, I can remember going to my wife and said, well, you just don't understand this struggle. And I remember, not in the exact words, but the type of counsel that she told me to go away and with God and my Bible and journal to think about is that I was talking like a victim. And in Christ, there are no victims. There are victors. And we are walking in a victory that is not ours, but nonetheless, is right there. And so Christians do not ever really, honestly, have the, the real capacity or the freedom to say, well, I can't change. Really, the, the attitude conveys that you won't change because Jesus is certainly powerful enough to get you and I out of the sinful struggles that we are in so that we do not have to claim that victim status but know the freedom that Jesus wants us to walk in, right? We are no longer slaves to sin, and if you are a believer, that is true of you. You're no longer a slave to sin. It is not your master anymore. Now, I know you might have come in here today having walked down some pretty sinful paths, and I heard James Lynch preach over in the auditorium last week that if you threw his sins up on the screens, you would never want him to preach for you again. I think that's true because often we know ourselves to be sinful people. We know our sins more than other people do, and we don't like to talk about them. But if you would be honest today, that even though you have walked down some sinful paths today, that was by your choice to voluntarily yoke yourself to the master's sin. That's on you. But God's grace is undergirding you still. And you can come back and you can claim with full confidence, not because of who you are in your actions, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and say, Paul's right, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I played my victim card, that was wrong. Sin no longer has dominion over me, because now I belong to him. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Secondly, I have a transformed heart. I have a transformed heart. Verse 17 says this, you have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. It's an interesting expression, and it's the reason why Paul says we are no longer slaves to sin, because we've had, if we have come to Jesus by faith in all that he has done, have had a transformed heart. This is such good news that look at how Paul says it. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This expression, the standard of teaching, includes the Christian discipleship that would have been passed down by this point from Jesus to the apostles, specifically in this case from Jesus to Paul. Right? The book of Romans, you can consider, is the standard of teaching. We know that we are justified people. And when we hear that message, it is, so, it is such good news. It's so good that our hearts awaken to the reality of something better than sin, something better than its false promises and faulty deliveries and the brokenness that we're in. And we believe that's what happens to a heart that has been awakened by obedience to the standard of teaching. The more Bible you take in, the more sound preaching you hear, the more life-giving it is. And I can imagine around this room, you have had hearts that have awakened. When you hear the word of God, your heart arises and says, yes, amen, that's true. I need that. That's a reality now that I didn't accomplish, but I believe. That's what I stake all my hope in. It's Christ and all that he has accomplished. A transformed heart takes hold of the promises of God and moves in the direction of obedience. This is true. So this is a standing that God has given us through justification. And as I said a moment ago, even sanctification is a standing in a position that he has put you in as an accomplished thing. But if you don't see this key in the text, I don't think you will grow in your own personal obedience. God really wants you to obey. He wants you to obey. So much so that he's transformed your heart to move in the direction to obey him. Sometimes we hold on to those first two realities of our justification and of our positional sanctification and then stop there. But I have a caution for you. And the caution is this. Jesus doesn't ever leave any of his people at the threshold of justification, but takes each of us further into the experience of sanctification and personal holiness in daily living. His will is for us to become more like him in experience, just like he has promised us is our position in him forever before the throne of God. In our daily experience, we have to take into our, our beliefs, our, our understanding of the gospel, that the gospel is so powerful that not only does it take care of past sins and give you a new record, it actually changes you. That is the promise of God. Now, I want to warn you from an example of a pastor that I heard about in the early 2000s 
who I really looked up to at the time, who taught on justification, who helped me understand these things better than others. But as he rose quickly to fame, he began to preach a message that no matter what we did, even after we became Christians, no matter how much we sin, God's love for us in Christ doesn't change and his grace is magnified by our brokenness and our shame. Some people began to notice this and talked about how, you know, on the one hand in Christianity, there was this idea that we were kind of acting like therapy could fix us, you know, just kind of talking about our problems. If we talk about our problems enough, then maybe, you know, we would eventually start to feel better about ourselves. And so people claimed that we were not worshiping God, but actually it was called moralistic therapeutic deism. You know, you've got morals, you've got good therapy, and you've got a belief in God, but it wasn't the God of the gospel. To fight against that, there was another polarized position that some people began to call celebratory failure. All right? I fail. Praise be to God because he's so gracious. But that's where the message consistently stopped. Now, my warning to you today is not to go that way. Even today, that pastor, after um, being caught in adultery and then further cases of adultery and losing his position in his church, has now started another church. And he's promoting a conference now that pulls people together with the promise that we are still fallen, but even though we are fallen, we are free. And it's flipped on what the paradigm of Paul is trying to teach us here. Paul says, no, 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 it's not that you are fallen and free, it's that you are slaves and free. The celebration is not in your fallenness, right? Now, I'm all for, (laughs) I'm all for transparency. And I have been helped by going to people who I trust, who can actually help me spiritually and hold me accountable. I have bared some things about myself to trusted brothers that I know can do something about it. And actually, there are consequences. And that has worked on me as one means of help in my pursuit of Christ. But it's another thing entirely to base your entire life around this idea that I'm a failure and I just celebrate the grace of God and everything's somehow going to work out to be okay. There's a better message for you and for me than that. We are now transformed to be slaves of righteousness. And I want to go to that in verse 18. Verse 18, look at that. It says there, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You see, we are being taught here to take hold of our sin. Again, not to play the victim card, not to claim that we have no hope, but to come to Jesus, to talk to trusted counselors as well, who can help us to apply these things where we might be stuck and to actually help us walk these things out so that we don't continue to go back into the slavery to sin. Because in reality, we are free now to be slaves to righteousness. That term is interesting and why it's chosen here instead of saying slaves to Christ. 
Paul wants us to think about the pathway of Christian slavery. Christian slavery doesn't lead to more and more, you know, overtaking of our lives, you know, putting us into a position where we don't feel fulfilled, putting us into spots where we feel like somehow we've lost control of what's happening in our lives and we don't feel joy anymore. Now, this slavery leads to more and more good fruit, to more and more pursuit of God, to more and more love for others. Now, the reality of this slavery is so good that we need to talk a little bit more about some practical steps for living as slaves like this. And I hope this is a very practical pathway for you. Practical steps for living as Christ's slaves. Verse 19, Paul says this, For I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Now, why does he say that? He's admitting that slavery really is not a helpful term in every possible way to describe the Christian life. He's saying that there is going to be an analogy breakdown somewhere, right? He's saying that each of us have natural limitations within ourselves to fully understand all of our position in Christ and everything that that means for us. But in reality, slavery still is a helpful way for us to process this. So let's think about the first thing. Paul says to present your bodies as slaves to righteousness. It's that word that was used last week in the sermon. He's using it again here. Present, make available, bring before someone and put under that person so that they have the right to tell you what to do, right? It's coming to God and saying, here I am, Lord, checking in and ready to obey you, wanting to please you. Take my life, even my body, in all its parts to honor you today and to love others, right? That prayer is a good prayer to begin your day. Lord, here I am, checking in ready to serve you and obey you today. You can add in there, I need your help in this. Lord, I know this is by your grace. Help me to walk in a way that pleases you. Take my life, even my body in all its parts, to honor you today and to love others well. How are we to do this, according to Paul? You can pray that, but at the same time, he gives some counsel. Look at verse 19 again. Right after he says natural limitations, he continues, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So how does Paul say that we're to present our bodies as slaves to righteousness he says, well, do it in the same way that you presented your body and all of your body parts as slaves to sin. Just think about how you did that for a moment. When you have a sinful desire, you think about it all the time. When you not just are tempted, now tempted, temptation is one thing. You and I can receive a direct temptation from the enemy of our souls and that's going to come out of nowhere. 
unless we are previously feeding the flesh, all right? Then the flesh grabs hold of that and causes us to have a desire. When that desire works out, it leads to the fruit of that desire, and we capitalize on something and we do it. And after that, the Bible says in James chapter 1, we get death. Now, you know that that pattern has happened before. You've given your time. You have organized your thoughts about sin. And this could be money. It could be your own popularity. It could be your image. It could be sex. Whatever it is, you've spent your time, your money. You've seen and can go back in your bank account, and it may shock you in the past what you may have done to support your sinful habits. You sought out community, right? I know the people in the church aren't going to help me to do this, so I better find some people who can teach me about this stuff. You know, you can learn a lot about sin, but you've got to find the people to help you do it. And if you were serious enough about it, you put yourself in situations where you associated with people who could help you sin. Now, those components are essential for our growth in grace and our pursuit of righteousness. All right? The same way you pursued a wicked community, pursue a righteous community. Get people around you who can help you walk in grace. Get people around you. If your senses are dulled between righteousness and sin, and if somehow they're flipped and you're calling good evil and evil good, get with people who can walk in the Bible with you and help you to see the difference. Right? Your money. Maybe it's something where you have to cut off some access to money for a little while and entrust somebody else to help you walk through that until such a time that you can turn that money into something good, where you can support the things of God and other people and make that a priority. Or maybe it's just your time. Could you imagine waking up in the morning and thinking in your first thought, God, here I am today. I belong to you. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I have been set free from sin by a transformed heart. And even though it might feel very light and slight and almost not there, I do want to obey you. I'm tired of the sin. Please take me today and use me. It's never too late to get off that third rail and to go back towards God and to pursue righteousness. Now, Jen Wilkin wrote an article um, several years ago, almost nine years ago now. She's a Bible teacher. Um, she wrote an article called Failure is Not a Virtue. I think she's right. <laughs> Failure is not a virtue. And here's what she said. Through the gospel, I think it's up here on the screen, through the gospel, our God, whose law and whose character do not change, changes us into those who obey in both motive and deed. Believers no longer live under the law, but the law lies under us as a sure path for pursuing what is good, right, and pleasing to the Lord. Now that is a helpful image to me. The law of God is no longer on my shoulders weighing me down. Right? That isn't a terrible burden to bear. There's a cartoon for The Pilgrim's Progress, and as a family, we've watched that. It came out recently, a couple years ago or more. And Christian, as he's on his journey, has a huge burden on his back. And he goes to the mountain called Sinai. You know, it represents the law of God. 
and there's a big stone judge on top of the mountain, and there's laws posted everywhere. And uh, Christian looks up at the, the judge, and he's like, I got to have help to get this burden off my back. <laughs> can you help me? And the judge says, yes, I can help you, but first you have to come up here. And so Christian tries with all his might, but the further he tries to go and the more progress he makes up the mountain, he gets hit by more laws until ultimately he's pummeled and falls back to the bottom of the canyon with a burden that's not relieved and beaten up and pounded by the laws that are there. Now, we have the promise that in Christ, he both satisfied the law of God, and so justice has been satisfied, and the mercy of God have met. So that those of us now who encounter the law, we are on top of that mountain. We don't have a judge condemning us as Christians anymore. We have the sure-footedness of God's directions through things like the Ten Commandments, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the various commands of Paul in the New Testament, just for examples to guide us in the way forward that we ought to go. And again, friends, I'm saying that a Christian obeys. A Christian obeys. Not because we have to to earn favor with God, but because God has so worked in our hearts by his spirit to make that transformed heart desire to obey. Now, there's two other things that you can do. And the first and a practical step is this. You can fight sin by considering its fruit. Verse 20 says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I'll, I'll pause there for a minute just to explain to you what Paul is talking about. He's like, yeah, we, we want freedom. Right? Maybe all this talk of slavery has bothered you. It bothers me. I don't like to think of myself as a slave to something. It feels uncomfortable. Well, Paul says, well, think about when you were slaves of sin. At that time, you were free from righteousness. But that's not the freedom that leads to life. That freedom just means that righteousness had no influence on you. Before you came to Christ, your sole driving force was doing whatever felt good and whatever you wouldn't get in trouble doing to feel good. Now, Paul says, think back on that time, right? Righteousness really did not drive you if you're honest with yourself. Now, what else happened as a fruit of sin? Not only were we not under the control of righteousness, leading to life and help and health to other people, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Think back and don't dwell on it much, but the power to overcome what the, the theologians call indwelling sin, the power to overcome indwelling sin is to be honest about sin's fruit. Often we look at the hook of sin and it promises us something attractive and we want it. And we don't take time to think about what the end is. We don't think about the fruit of what that sin is going to produce. The fruit that comes from sin is always rotten. It always indicates that the root is dead 
And what comes out is death. Think about any time that you have sinned, even if you think it's been in the privacy of your home and no one knows about it, it still damages relationships. It still breaks you off from right fellowship with other people and doing what you ought to be doing instead of that sin. It often causes bankruptcy. It often causes humiliation of others. Sin and its fruit always leads to death. Be honest and real with yourself. In the 1700s, a man named John Owen, he was a pastor. What you find back in the 1700s is that there were a bunch of pastors who were dealing with these issues and people who were really finding it hard to change. And he wrote a couple of volumes. And what I was so helped with this week was looking back at that book that he wrote. It's been compiled into one volume called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. It's a wonderful resource. And one of the counsel that he, counsels that he gives again and again is to be real about sin. Right? Think about its fruit, not its hook. Think rightly about what happens to you when you give in to it. Friends, if that's where you're at today, then I would just encourage you to think about sin, not to glory in it, but to be honest about where you are. I do think that God's people can get stuck in that slavery to sin. But I do know that God's people also don't stay there. You are free in Christ. If you belong to him at all, you are free in Christ. And I think you can call today your issue what it is. You have played the victim card today when Jesus Christ has already been the victor. But in saying that, please know that he loves you. He does not hold even that sin at a place that it would cancel your account with him. You still live under grace. And this is the irony of getting to the conclusion. We started at grace, and we end with grace. And we learned that the means to do this never comes from getting to a spot of perfect obedience. And I would counsel you against this. It would be looking at your experience and figuring out if you love God enough or looking at your experience and figuring out if you're sanctified or holy enough. Place all your confidence in your sanctification that comes through the declaration of Christ's credit to you. And then enjoy looking forward to walking that out in obedience that springs from love, not from duty, but out of the desire to show God the great joy that you have, the great thanks, as Paul put it, thanks be to God. We're no longer slaves to sin, but obedient now from the heart, slaves of righteousness. So pursue holiness at the end. Really, pursue holiness by considering its fruit. The Bible tells us in perhaps one of the most famous verses in Romans, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the spending money I mentioned at the beginning. When you hook yourself up under a master and you get at the end of that seven-year time period, he gives you your wage. He says, here's your spending money. Here's what I put aside for you. Right? But for sin as your master, what it pays you at the end is death. Here you go. 
you're condemned, dead, no hope. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God doesn't give a wage. God doesn't hold spending money so that if you do all your chores, you get it in the end. God's MO here is not to test you to see if you will be obedient enough. What he's looking for is your motive of obedience and moving towards him because you love him, because you are grateful to him because of what he's done for you. You and I will never, and I was so thankful to read this, and a godly man, Jerry Bridges, has gone on to be with the Lord, but he wrote several helpful books. He wrote a book called Holiness by Grace. In one of his chapters in that book, he confessed he will never love God with all his heart. You know, I heard in one of our lessons here in the Hub not long ago on a Wednesday night that we are called to love God with all our hearts. And I think, I want to do that, but I don't often have that record. In Christ Jesus, my Lord, I do have that record. And now I can move towards God and trust Him and love Him more and see my experience of it grow as I continue to press into God. My experience of holiness will grow as my appreciation of my position of holiness stands. And I know that God has put me in Christ Jesus. So Paul says elsewhere, friends, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, now catch this, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So I conclude today by asking you a few questions. Is it your desire to be zealous for good works for Jesus? If not, then go back to the beginning of Romans 6. Ask the questions that Paul does, but personalize them. Should I keep on sinning so that grace from God keeps flowing? No way. Should I sin because I'm not under the law but grace? No way. Then talk to yourself from Romans 6. The old me died with Jesus Christ. I'm now dead to sin and its power over me. Sin no longer calls the shots. I'm alive like Jesus is alive, and I am God's slave, saved to bear good fruit for him now. I'm not a victim of sin any longer. And to stay in sin is not only deadly to me, but it doesn't even line up with who I am now. In Christ, I am free to live, free to serve, free to grow and glorify God with my life. So friends, ask the questions of Romans 6 and speak to yourselves the truths of Romans 6 and walk in the freedom of the slaves of Christ. Let's pause and pray. And then our team will come and lead us in the last song. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. 
we know that we're right in the middle of this journey of sanctification. When we were saved, you declared us righteous. You gave us a righteous record for all eternity. But now we're in the, the time of not being fully sanctified yet in our experience. I, I ask that you give grace to these hearers today, grace that they would grow, that they would be real about their sin, but also real about the promises of life and the realities of grace, the reality of what it means to walk with you. So help us to affirm that we should not walk in sin anymore. Help us to sing that now, and may that be a response of faith. And would you deliver anyone here today who does not know Jesus? May this be the day of their salvation. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.